0: Welcome back to Lost in Citations. Today's guest is Dr. Simon Bogue, assistant—I'm sorry, associate professor of psychology at Macquarie University. Uh, Dr. Bogue, how, how are you today?
1: I'm uh, um, well, thank you. Uh, thank you very much for having me.
0: I always get that confused, assistant or associate professor. I, I apologize. No, not a problem. Not a problem. All right. So today's episode is is a bit of a a different. Citation, we're, we're gonna drift into, to, to dreams and, uh, more of the psych, real psychology, finger quotes, where previous episodes have been in on language teaching and some psychology aspects of maybe anxiety or test anxiety. But this is, this is really going into the, again, finger quotes, uh, maybe real psychology. Is that, is that how you would, you would view something like this? Because uh, I, I'm coming from like the educational psychology background. Um, but I, I'm, you know, I'm studying, I, I'm I'm having to study psychology, but I would say when people think about psychology, maybe the first thing they think about is Freud.
1: Yes. Look, I, I'm not really sure. I think a lot of people take psychology to be say clinical psychology or counseling, but I think um, when you ask people about what they expect to study in their first year, uh, it's often these theories related to personality uh, and theories that you know, promise to give us a a greater depth of understanding of who we are. And I think a lot of people expect that, uh, and they don't necessarily get it. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think you're, you're probably right.
0: All right. So today's article is titled on dreams and motivation comparison of Freud's and Hobson's views. And this is in frontiers in psychology. If people would like to read this before they listen to the episode, what's the best way for them to, to read the article?
1: Um, okay, well, it's an open access article, uh, and that means you can, uh, relatively easily find it if you put it in the, the title into a search engine or using Google Scholar or come up there as a, as a, uh, a free, um, download. Uh, otherwise you can go to the Frontiers in Psychology website and, uh, track it down there.
0: How, how long did it take you to, to write this article?
1: Oh, goodness. Um... From memory, probably about two or three months initially, uh, and then uh, it went through the review process, and, and then there was quite a lot of work. And in fact, actually, when the paper first, uh, uh, when I first wrote the paper, it was actually probably you know another good couple of thousand words longer than the present one, and uh, I actually ended up cutting some out, and I'm actually thinking of using that for another paper
0: now. What what made you choose? Choose the, the topic of of comparing Freud and Hobson and dreams and motivation.
1: Uh, yeah, well, I suppose. Look, when I first started my psychological studies, which was in the like around nineteen ninety four, uh, I was really interested in dreams, and it's just been a, a long standing interest of mine. And so, I've looked at various types of theories ad- addressing dreams uh, and looked at their strengths and weaknesses and. Uh, I think one of the interesting things about comparing freud 's uh, theory of dreams and hobson 's theory of dreams is that um, they both have longevity in so far as uh, you know we 've had freud 's theory for over a hundred years, and hobson 's theory has been evolving for roughly the last four decades so um, and they're they're major rival theories, but at the same time I think there are some are some comparison points. Uh, and, uh, yeah, and look, it's, you know, it's just for me, it's just, I find it a a very interesting, I find dreams just very, very interesting. Can
0: you, can you tell, can you tell me and maybe some of the listeners who don't know much about Hobson, that's not really a familiar person to me. I guess, is he quite famous in, in the realm of dreams?
1: So Alan Hobson, uh, is a, a very successful neuroscientist, uh, and in, in the context of dreams, Um, he wrote a paper with Robert McCarley uh, around the the, the late 1970s. And these papers were enormously influential because what they did was uh, in these papers they lashed upon evidence that actually suggested uh, at face value that Freud's theory of dreams must be incorrect. Uh, And it was was an enormously influential um, uh, finding or, or argument that they developed uh, and if, and I think for many people it probably meant that you know there was no reason to to think that there could be any kind of validity to Freud's theory of dreams uh, whatsoever. Uh, just re- returning to your question before about why compare Hobson's and uh, Freud's theories, I mean, what the interesting comparison point I think is actually the neuroscientific evidence, because Hobson and McCarley based their Um, their criticism of Freudian theory on brain evidence, which, you know, at the time was probably the strongest evidence compared to uh, the evidence that Freud could produce. Uh, But nevertheless, from roughly around the, you know, the turn of the 21st century, there's been increasing brain evidence, which has been more and more suggestive that, well, if anything, the, the balance of evidence is actually tipping towards Freud's theory. Uh, and uh, yeah, so it's uh, and the brain evidence uh, for something as slippery as dreams to be able to substantiate them or ground them in in kind of neural processes uh, is is a really I, th- I think it's a very important step forward to trying to substantiate. I mean, it's one thing to have a theory, um, but if you can't, you know, and it might be an interesting theory like Freud's theory of dreams, but if you can't substantiate it or or, or find convincing evidence for it. Well, then, it just you know it, it's inconsequential. It's not in, it's not really helping our understanding of of you know of what's going on with dreaming. So, the neuroscientific evidence, I think, is particularly
0: interesting. Now, I just want to read something from your conclusion. You you say Hobson's appeal to emotions and instincts is a step in the right direction and provides a platform for approaching an understanding of the role of motivation in dreams, even if the specifics of the motivational systems require elucidation. So, are you saying? Did you grasp onto this comparison of motivation? Is that is that something that you've chosen? Because correct me if I'm wrong, but Hobson isn't directly talking about motivation, but you're sort of no, no. deducing yeah. that.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, so that's right. And uh, in the earlier parts of the paper, I, I talk about the importance of motivation for our explanations of dreams but also for just anything that we actually do Uh, and it is it is something I latched on onto I think uh, I mean just as some background my interest in Freudian theory is in in some ways or very much uh, boils down to his account of motivation so the explanation he gives for what we do generally and this is and there's a particular motivational account uh, in in Freud's theory it's consistent with uh, you know, what we might call a deterministic or, or causal account of what we do. Um, I mean, I have to be careful with words like determinism because they mean different things to different people. But here we're just talking about a, a causal account. Um, and the the role of motivation, I think, is a really pivotal one. And I think also just to give you some background, when, when Hobson and Macaulay wrote those papers in the 1970s, what was What was probably the most striking claim or counter argument against Freud's theory was that there was there was no motivation involved in dreams. And for Freud, um, dreams were the, you know, motivation was the basis for, for our dreams and understanding our dreams. So that was their that was their point of contrast. But what I've found interesting is that if you read Hobson's work over the last four or so decades, um, you'll, you'll see that his theory is going through various twists and turns and trying to accommodate, uh, as any theory has to in terms of actually facing the actual evidence, actually addressing the, the role of motivation. Motivation just seems to be, no matter whether you're a Freudian or not, motivation just seems to be an, import, uh, an important component, component for understanding what we do. Uh, and 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 what we dream. All
0: right. Well, let's let's start with the the Freudian dream theory because that's where the paper starts. Yeah. And uh, I just want to pick out a, a few things. These are just things that yeah. sort of struck me. What one thing you you wrote about is a hallucinatory fulfillment of wishes. Yeah, sure. Um, and then you you mentioned how this was empirically informed. So how exactly yeah. how is this? Are these like interviews that that Freud was doing with people after their dreams?
1: Yeah, well, this is a, a very good question. So when we're talking about empiricism, uh, or when I'm using the word empiricism, I just mean it in its most broader sense, which is knowledge through experience. Uh, and in modern-day psychology, of course, we expect it to be rigorously conducted studies and so on. But you have to appreciate that Freud was writing uh, at, the, at the birth of modern psychology, really, and the, what, what counted as empirical evidence and this isn't just Freud, you know, like uh, people like William James and so on was what you might describe as introspection. Uh, and uh, look, my personal um, view here is that uh, much of Freud's dream, dream theory was derived from his own analysis of dreams. Yeah, or dreams of his, you know, of, uh, analysis of other people's dreams and so on. He did a very thorough literature review of the dream theories, but I think his personal experience is reflected in the interpretation of dreams, where he actually um, interprets his own dreams as a way of demonstrating his particular theory. So it's empirical; it's based on experience, but it it wouldn't really cut it, um, uh, really, by today's. Um, you know standards of what we expect in terms of empirical research.
0: Well, isn't that an interesting argument? If you're saying that you know his 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 theories have been questioned, but now they're they're coming back around as being um, you know recognized with with the neuroscience. But yeah. but isn't there a bias with with analyzing your own dreams? And it, you know if it comes around that it his theories were right um, based on the analysis of his own dreams. Can, is, is that yeah. possible? Look,
1: yeah, look, I mean, uh, if you look at Freud's empirical evidence, okay, it includes his, his own uh, dream interpretation studies, uh, and it also includes various case studies, um, you know, that he reports. And I think, you know, I'm sympathetic to Freud, uh, but I read his case studies and I see them as examples of uh, uh, really just Examples of confirmation bias. So he's got a theory, and he's he's using these case studies to um, justify the theories. And and really, that goes against for me. That for me, that goes against good scientific reasoning. I mean, what for me is important. I mean, you can always, you know, by and large, find confirmatory evidence to support your view, and that's that's the kind of easy or the lazy route. Uh, It's a much more uh, a, a much more rigorous position and a very important position is to actually find evidence that goes counter to your point of view. So, yes, his, his methods, are, uh, you know, I, I, you know, his methods by today's standards are, are problematic. The only thing I just want to add to that kind of thing from what I sense from your question is that, okay, even if he developed his theory based on what we might consider, you know, relatively shonky uh, methods for, 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 you know, that he that he uh, conducted for uh, in that day, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that the theory is false. It just means that well, what's the evidence? The initial evidence is you know you have to take with a, a grain of salt, so to speak. Uh, well, that's the way I would read it. So really, then the question is, I mean, anybody can propose a theory based on whatever sources. The 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 next and probably more important step perhaps is to then say, okay, does does this theory actually stack up with the evidence? And I think the real problem for Freud's theory was that for a long time, I mean, people either liked it or they hated it, perhaps. Um, but you, you were you were actually reliant on, you know, dream interpretation and so on as, as the primary source of evidence for the the correctness of the theory, and that that was really really problematic. This is why I think historically the neuroscientific evidence has been so interesting because. When, uh, you know, various types of, uh, neuroscientific, neuroscientific techniques developed that actually gave us better insight into what the brain is during, uh, doing during sleep. Well, then we started to get evidence that could actually give us some sense of, is there any merit to what Freud is saying? Or is there actually, you know, you know, uh, are there, is it mostly kind of falsified? Uh, and, and, look, the history here is really, really interesting because, as I said before, Hobson and Macaulay initially thought that the evidence clearly falsified Freud's dream theory, and I think a lot of other people did as well. But as the evidence has uh, accumulated, as I said before, the, I, I think even, even Hobson, uh, you know, writes in such a way that uh, although he still doesn't accept Freud's theory, he, he writes he accepts parts of the evidence that really... Uh, fit the, the the central theory of of Freud's um, dream uh, dream theory.
0: So, all right. So, if we're talking about the the Freudian dream theory, we're talking about the hallucinatory fulfillment of wishes, and sure. then he talks about censorship or yeah. repression. And so, then, can I just yeah. yeah? Sorry, go on. Well, um, well, I, 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 this is leading to the example of Freud's dream, which I wanted to talk about and why you chose that one. But it, okay. you you were you were sort of showing the weaknesses of the argument that there's maybe three parties at work here. There's your what's the term you called it um, the the somatic you know hungers or sexualities that yeah. are driving dreams, and then you have the ego, which is maybe repressing the the, the consciousness, and then this sort of the watchman, which you were using yeah. the the German um, translation. And there, that, there was weaknesses there that how, what did you say? Uh, recently I have proposed following lines of thought in Freud's own writings that repression involves knowing the targets of repression, but preventing knowing or acknowledging that the repressed targets are known. So that's, sure. that's a huge, that's a huge weakness in, in his theory. Now I, I was, I, and then you go on to, 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 to give a specific example of, of, of a dream that Freud had. Um, for, for well, first of all, I, I was, I always like seeing the word "I" in uh, academic writing. It's so rare. <laughs> what, what? Why did you choose that that sort of point to to sort of interject your your own position?
1: Um, well, I suppose you know when when we are when we are writing, um, you know, I, I don't have any personal objection to um, using the the personal pronoun "I." Uh, I tend to avoid it a little bit because um, partly. For no for no great reason. I, it's usually, I suppose, you're just kind of trying to uh, engage with the literature in less of a idiosyncratic way. I interjected, as you said, in that particular part because I was talking about my own a specific part of my own contribution, uh, which I didn't want to necessarily kind of uh, present as uh, a you know a, a position that. There's consensus on, or that other people have accepted, or so on. So it was really just, you know, taking responsibility for, for, for the claim. But, um, look, I mean, really to make sense of everything that you're, you're saying, we, we would need to have a bit of a, a quick crash course in Freud's theory, sure. which sure. I can give you. Yeah, that's great. Okay. So, I mean, the, 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 the striking feature of Freud's theory is that he wants to say that dreams, the dreams that we have, express the fulfillment of our wishes yeah the dreams that we have express the fulfillment of our wishes now if you think about the dreams that you remember i mean how fulfilling are they uh the the most common dreams that we remember tend to be things like anxiety dreams or dreams that are nonsensical and don't seem to have any major claim to fulfilling anything whatsoever so to go back a little bit, so Freud wants to say that sometimes we have what we call undisguised um, wish-fulfilling dreams, and to give you one of his own examples, uh, Freud, uh, and this is where he actually uses the word experimentally in the, in the actual direct quote, Freud says uh, there's a dream he can experimentally induce whenever he likes. He eats in the evening lots of salty anchovies, and then in the middle of the night he has a dream, and the dream is of drinking lots of water. And his theory here is that, okay, so you eat uh, eat the anchovies, you become dehydrated in your sleep, uh, and uh, as as a result of that dehydration, you have a desire to drink, and then that is reflected in your dreams. And Freud terms these types of dreams as the the guardians of sleep. The idea is, is that rather than being woken up to actually fulfill the need, uh, we actually dream of fulfilling, you know, dream of the, the thirst being quenched and so we can keep on dreaming, at least for a, a smaller uh, amount of time. Um, so they're undisguised dream, uh, um, you know, dream, fulfillment of, of wishes. But the more trickier one is the, what he calls the disguised uh, wish-fulfilling uh, dreams. And so Freud would say that, look, we all have conflicting desires and this is i mean i mean one of the tricky things i always find with with talking about any part of freud's theory is that you have to, to talk about one element you have to draw in the rest of the elements to to give it any kind of substantiation but i'll do my best so we have conflicting desires for freud our, our major conflict was with sexuality yep so we had a you know as we grow up we get taught sexuality is bad we kind of banish it from our conscious uh, our consciousness you have to remember this is during the Victoria Victorian era when sexuality, uh, the relationship of humans with their sexuality was quite different from uh, today. Um, but that aside, okay, we have certain kind of wishes. They might be kind of death wishes and so on that we we, we, we find unacceptable or, or sexual wishes. We push them out of our minds during the day and then at night kind of thing when we're asleep, they try and, and encroach into our minds and we might reject them in various ways, and this is where we get our anxiety dreams. So, I mean, I can give you one of Freud's own examples. Well, can I, ju- can I jump in? Can okay, I jump in real please. quick?
0: So now you're talking about the the ego protect, protecting the id. Oh, uh, okay. I, was a so bit, you, I was a little bit confused you can, by that. You
1: can, you can talk about all of this without talking. I mean, the whole id ego, super ego theory, Freud's so-called structural theory, I mean, that's a bit of a can of worms. Okay. But the id part is meant to be like your drives, your motivational foundations, your motivational sources. I mean, I could talk about drives at length. I, I, uh, I'll just sidestep, sidestep that for the moment. The egos, and again, I mean, one of the the annoying things about Freud's theory is that there's numerous theories within the one theory so he's because I guess
0: I guess my yeah. question is why is it why is it important for the 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 brain to protect the person from having these fantasies that are repressed during the day what what what's the reasoning behind that well why is that why is that a protection th- why is that important for like you 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 mentioned some evolutionary aspects of this i don't understand how that uh, would help us like um Like the flight or flight, like I I get how you you talked about how, okay, the the not getting the drink of water, maybe it's important that you're, you're asleep and you, you stay there. Um, But I don't understand how protecting your, like censoring yourself at night. I don't understand how that fits in with like the evolutionary or or protection. Again, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm I'm touching on things that are a can of worms or not.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, again, look, there's always, with Freud, that's the thing, there's always a can of worms. So I don't want to use that as a kind of diversionary kind of tactic. I mean, if you look at um, Randolph Nessie's book, a uh, relatively recent book maybe this year or last year, Good Reasons for Bad Feelings, uh, The one of the things he talks about there is that this whole kind of re- repression and self-deceptive types of processes can actually have certain types of evolutionary uh, um survival types of, of functions, so uh, to give you an example I mean if, if I can just give you an example of a dream, uh, a parent okay a parent of a newborn child uh, might have a dream that an anxiety dream a nightmare that the, that the, the child is being you know taken away or they, they lose the child and so on and the, the parent experiences that as intense anxiety. Um, and what might be going on in a dream like that is that, uh, the parent actually has say death wishes towards the, the, the child. Um, and rather than that, those death wishes being, um, expressed directly in the dream. So the parent actually, you know, uh, uh, doing something to the infant, it's actually then disguised as somebody else takes the child away or, or so on. And I suppose if you wanted to look at it in an evolutionary type of sense, which I'm actually wouldn't even suggest that you necessarily should do, but if you wanted to, you could say that, well, obviously uh, it's, there could be a, you know, a certain type of survival uh, or reproductive value for the parent actually not becoming aware of their death wishes, having the dreams distorted, so they don't actually see their own actions and so that they can, they continue to care for the child. Now I'm not necessarily saying that is, that is the case, but just, if you want to take a dream which is so apparently appalling uh, and understand it in a Freudian sense and relate it to the, the, the issue of what kind of purpose it might serve, um, well, then that, that, that might be uh, a, an example if you like.
0: Okay. So why did you, why did you choose this particular dream in, in the paper? And I, this is, I think this is the good thing about the yeah. podcast is we can pick on something yeah. that I think is a really difficult thing to write. Um, this is probably easier to talk about in a presentation, and I think you did present yeah. this paper, um, and it was probably easier for you to discuss. I think you did a really good job of of writing it out, um, but I think yeah. like writing something like this on on page seven, where, you know, you you you're, you're setting it up, and then you go to a particular example given yeah. uh, Freud's dream, and you outline it all in the paper. Was that really yeah. difficult? I guess I, I two things. One, I'd like you to kind of break it down, um, like and, and then was it difficult to write? Is, is that something like this easier to, to sort of share in a in a presentation?
1: Uh, yeah. Look, I, I look. You know, I did find this paper particularly difficult, um, but that, there's there's numerous reasons for that because I was juggling quite a few different things uh, at the same time. But um, yeah, I, I mean, in terms of choosing the dream, so it's the the dream of uh, Irma's injection. I mean, why this dream is is historically important was that it was Freud's interpretation of this dream that he claims gave him insight into his theory of dreams, okay? So it's kind of like, you know, the most celebrated dream uh, interpretation Freud ever produces because it's the foundation for his theory. So look, if, if the interpretation fails, of course, or, you know, kind of thing, if you can find other better explanations... Uh, which, which might be possible, of course, then, uh, you know, then part of the foundations for, for Freud's dream theory is, 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 is taken away. So, uh, I mean, in a nutshell, it is a, it's quite a, a complicated dream. Uh, and um, so in the dream, uh, well, the day before, and this is the important kind of point, the day before Freud's talking to a, a friend of his, uh, a friend who he describes as a junior colleague, Uh, about a therapy for a young woman named Irma. Um, And this is very, very early on in in Freud's kind of psychoanalytic writings. Uh, And the friend had told him that the the treatment hadn't been totally successful, it had been a partial success. And Freud had a sense that he was being, you know, kind of accused or reproached by the comment that, you know, it wasn't just a neutral comment, it was actually, it was a kind of a personal attack uh, on him. Later that night, Freud has the dream, uh, and in, in this particular dream, uh, they're discussing Irma. There's lots of people, uh, and uh, she's talking about how she still has pains, okay? So she, it's kind of she's still suffering, but she says to Freud, it's not your fault okay, in the dream she says to Freud, it's not your fault. So in terms of breaking it down, in ter- like as, as the first instance of wish fulfilment, uh, Freud's feeling bad, you know, in real life he's feeling bad because he hasn't actually, um, you know, helped this person. He's, you know, feeling like he's being accused. And the first wish-fulfilling part in the dream is basically, you know, it's not your fault, okay, so it may be fairly transparent. Uh, but, yeah, of course there might be other explanations, of course. Um, and then... He starts to inspect her further and then start, you know, starts to wonder whether there's actually some kind of organic or, if you like, physical reason for her symptoms rather than psychological symptoms uh, and, and so on, which, again, is kind of shifting the blame, as it were. Towards the end of the dream, uh, it turns out that Otto, who was the person who had kind of talked to Freud the night before and gave this kind of, you know, not-so-subtle accusation perhaps, was actually responsible so otto had given her this uh, 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 an in- injection of something uh and uh and i think freud from memory says that maybe the syringe was dirty or something like that and and so it ends up all being otto's fault yeah, so you can see again, Freud's feeling bad about it. he doesn't want to accept responsibility for the failure of the therapy, uh, and it ends up also being an expression of anything of you know of a certain kind of hostility where the blame gets associated with Otto. So that's the dream in a in a nutshell, uh, and uh, so a kind of in the paper I think I describe it as like a wishful revenge type of dream, uh, and so on.
0: Okay, so and then then you transition to Hobson's proto-consciousness hypothesis, yeah. and I guess on on page eight here um, you talk. Now this is some some scientific uh, yeah. terms I'm not really too aware of. You say um, the bizarre nature of dreams occur due to random PGO brainstem activation, amin- aminergic demodulation, and deactivation of the dorsolateral prefront- prefrontal cortex during REM dream sleeping um bizarre then you you quote hobson and pace uh shot bizarre because of the loss of the organizing capacity of the brain not because of, of an elaborate disguise mechanism that rids an internal stimulus of an unacceptable meeting so now you start to talk about how the neuroscience is um is is disagreeing with with what 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 freud was saying can you sort sure. of br- break that d- break that down a, a little bit about how yeah, so- how do they come to that Conclusion. Okay, so going back a little bit in history.
1: So if you go back to the early 1950s, there was two researchers, uh, and they didn't have much. That you know, they weren't really interested in Freud's research per se, uh, but they were interested in what happens to our brains during sleep. And what they discovered was that, well, when we go to to sleep, uh, our brains go through various stages of, uh, you know, various different stages of sleep. There's actually five different stages of sleep four of these stages are called non rapid eye movement sleep and one of these stages is called rapid eye movement sleep now it's called rapid eye movement sleep because if you see somebody during that phase of sleep their eyes are fluttering as if you know they're moving rapidly whereas this doesn't occur in the other stages the the non rapid eye movement uh, stages of sleep are very much characterized by the brain uh, by brain activity becoming much slower Um, And, and yeah, so basically, to put it simply, the brain is becoming uh, much less active as we go into these deeper and deeper layers or stages of sleep. What's interesting is that after going through these stages, these four stages, we then go into rapid eye movement sleep, and it's sometimes described as paradoxical sleep because what's occurring is our brains uh, suddenly become active as if we're awake, not quite awake. The, the, the activity just, you know, say under the threshold of our normal wakefulness. Uh, but nevertheless, the, the, the brain activity looks like it is, it, it's, you know, as, as we might as well be awake, but we're, we're still asleep. What was interesting about this particular finding was that if you wake somebody up during non-rapid eye movement sleep, they're far less likely uh, to, to report that they're actually having a dream. And if they do report having a dream, it's more, it's going, it's more likely to be uh, kind of like talking to yourself and talking to yourself in your sleep rather than it actually being uh, uh, like these kind of vivid visual hallucinations, auditory hallucinations that we commonly um, uh, associate with dreams. What was interesting about the rapid eye movement sleep stage is that if you wake somebody during that stage of sleep, more often than not, so up to 90% of the time they will report that they are having uh, having a, a vivid uh, dream. So there seemed to be, on the face of it, there seems to be a very, very clear connection between um, rapid eye movement sleep and dreaming. The interesting thing that Hobson and McCarley latched onto uh, was to say that, well, look, if you look at... Rapid eye movement sleep it occurs cyclically throughout the the nights uh, you know throughout our, our sleep so we 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 go through the various stages of uh, non rapid eye move, movement sleep and roughly every ninety to one hundred minutes uh, we have this rapid eye movement sleep or REM sleep I'll just use REM sleep from here uh, and this occurs cyclic, cyclically and it occurs more frequently towards um you know uh, towards morning when we're about to wake up. Now, if dreams are associated with rem sleep uh and they occur cyclically well then that seems on the face of it and i, I think this is i think this is a very very fa- a fair point it seems on the face of it that Dreams that really aren't related to our motivational desires, because in the in the Freudian model, we should dream when uh, you know really when desires are impinging upon the mind, and rather than and that could occur at any stage, rather than it being this kind of cyclical, uh, this the, the cyclical activation. Now, the part of the brain that's associated with this REM sleep is the pons. It's very very deep in the brain, uh, and for Hobson and McCarley, they just saw that what happens is that Uh, This becomes active during REM sleep. It just uh, uh, makes the brain have all these kind of random images. So the the brain's active, lots of random images, and then part of us, our sleeping minds, our sleeping egos, if you like, we synthesize it into a kind of semi-coherent story. So we have random images and we somehow piece them together in our sleep to have the, the plots that we, you know, that we remember as our dreams, and so the initial theory was the activation synthesis hypothesis. It then went on to be, uh, it then went on to be modified into the aim model and the and the the later permutations that we now find in in Hobson's um, uh, theory.
0: So then, when on on page nine, it kind of comes back to the evolutionary aspect of this, where um, we're trying to minimize the the free energy um okay. so you you write um according to the free energy account the brain minimizes free energy by employing top-down expectations internal hierarchical models to predict sensory input and thus minimize prediction error so what you're saying okay. is there's all these random things and then our brain is sorting through them and that is that is sort of helping us to to live our lives uh you know you know visualizing patterns and that sort of thing yeah along those kind of lines that's right I mean just the interesting thing on that point
1: in the whole kind of so in in that particular paper hobson's uh, quoting friston's work the uh, about free energy what what's interesting is that the the psychoanalytic writers are actually quoting exactly the same work and friston himself actually uh, has has written papers saying well actually this is consistent with the Freudian theory rather than uh you know than rival theory so it's a I mean that's just an aside but it's an interesting kind of intersection i mean one of the things i'm doing with this paper i suppose is saying that there is a certain kind of uh meeting point between hobson's theory and and, and freud's
0: theory so I, I i didn't really know this but you, you can dream in in, in rem or, or rem or out of rem correct like-
1: yeah yes well that that's so into so generally speaking as i said before if you if you wake somebody up um during REM sleep, you're, the person is likely to report having their dreams, but it's not a one-to-one match. Uh, and I remember it must have been around 2004, I think, uh, and this was even reported in the, the front page of the, the one of the major papers in um, Sydney, Australia. Um, a case study was reported from uh, Switzerland, uh, I, I believe, and what was interesting about this case study was that a particular woman had damage to, part, uh, to, to her pons, a part of the brain, responsible for rapid eye movement sleep. She was no, it was no longer physically possible for her to have REM sleep, uh, any longer, but nevertheless, she still reported dreaming, uh, vivid dreams. Um, and this is taken as, as some of the evidence to suggest that, well, maybe, Dreams are not really associated with rapid eye movement sleep so much. There might be other parts of the brain that are, that are actually, you know, that are more important or more fundamental for understanding, uh, dreams. And so this kind of dissociation that people, you know, so it at face value, REM sleep and dreams do seem to to go hand in hand, but at the same time that you can still have vivid dreams without REM sleep. Uh, and in fact, it's it's actually other parts of the brain that get damaged that seem to have um, uh, have greater consequences for whether we dream or not, uh, and that's this kind of uh, dopamine pathway, uh, the reward system of the brain, the the um, uh, yeah the mesolimbic mesocortical dopamine pathway, the accruing evidence uh, of the relationship between the the dopamine pathway. And dreaming is actually the, the evidence, the neuroscientific evidence that's accruing, if anything, for, for Freud's theory of dreams.
0: Now, the, yeah, the dopamine, I, I have this written down. So uh, if I have this correct, so during, during REM sleep, our brains are more adaptive. And then how does dopamine play into that? Is dopamine coming in during the, the REM mostly or in other, other aspects of the, the dreaming?
1: Uh, well, look. If, if anything, oh, okay. So where, where does the dopamine come into it? Well, look. The interesting thing is, I suppose, is that if you actually look at the parts of the brain that are responsible and seem to be more fundamentally responsible for dreaming, uh, it's the parts associated with dopamine. And so you have to ask the question: Well, what, what's the role of dopamine? And dopamine is very much associated with this kind of motivational and reward pathways in the brain. So, for instance, uh, drugs of addiction. Um, you know, they they kind of hijack this dopamine pathway and trick the brain. If I can just, you know, be a bit mm. metaf- metaf- metaphorical for a minute, yep. they trick the brain into thinking that the, the the substance that the person is becoming addicted to is is something like a biological need. So I said before, I mean, for Freud's theory, the the, the fundamental starting point for dreams or understanding dreams are these kind of biological drives, these biological needs. Um, and uh, and so that this kind of this this fundamental pathway that's associated with those dream uh, with, with with those kind of needs seems to be uh, the pathway associated with, with you know very much fundamentally at the basis of dreaming and there's a, there's a lot of interesting evidence uh, related to this uh, so for instance uh, you would have heard of prefrontal lobotomies I, I suppose or more technically they're called lobotomies. they were performed roughly from the 40s to through the 60s as a way of controlling severe schizophrenia. And they basically involve putting a, a, a surgical instrument up under the eyes and separating the front part of the brain from the, the back of the brain, hence prefrontal lobotomy. Uh, and what that basically does is disrupt the, um, uh, the dopamine pathway and as a result, after that, okay, there's numerous effects, as you might imagine, but as a result, the person stops dreaming, they, they no longer have a fantasy life, et cetera. Now, in isolation, you say, okay, well, you know, that, that, that might be indicative, but it's not, you know, it, it's, it's not convincing evidence, perhaps. What's interesting is if you stimulate this dopamine pathway chemically, uh, you get very, very vivid dreams. Uh, and, uh, just, I mean, this, this whole kind of dopamine, uh, pathway through converging sources of evidence seems to be the, the, the important kind of factor for, for understanding, um, you know, uh, the foundation of dreams. And because it's associated with motivation and reward in principle, it's consistent or maybe better, not inconsistent with the, with the, with the Freudian account. I mean, I don't like to latch onto evidence and say, this is confirmatory evidence, what the best we can do under these circumstances, in my view, is to say, okay, well, what what is the evidence available to us? What, on balance, what is it? You know, is it giving us more or uh, or less evidence for the Freudian account, Hobson's account, or some other account? And um, and just just the other thing I have to just append to that is to say that. Um, even though dopamine is associated with reward and motivation, it's consistent, if you like, with Freud's theory, there might be another explanation for it being associated with dreams. So we've always got to be very tentative in the way that we uh, deal with this type of um, evidence. But in, in any case, it seems it's not inconsistent with what Freud would be proposing um,
0: well, yeah. what, what, I found, what I found interesting, so Freud is talking about drives, you know, hunger and sexuality and then repression, and that might cause an, an anxiety dream. And Hobson is talking about how anxiety and anger and these sort of dreams are actually healthy because maybe it's, it's the brain yeah. working to sift through this information. Sure. Why, why exactly did he say that anxiety and anger are primarily adaptive? What, what, what exactly oh, okay. does that mean?
1: Well, yeah, so what, what's Hobson talking about, do you mean? Well, uh, the, the example that I, um, from memory that he uses, is that, well, you know, anxiety, or let's just say fear. Fear has, uh, a, you can understand fear having a kind of survival function. If we didn't have any fear, um, then, um, you know, we we would do things, you know, that would compromise our, you know, survival and, and, and reproductive health, I, I assume. Uh, and same for anger too. You can look at anger as, as potentially being something which um, is, you know, functional in so far as you know, rather than just if, if somebody's trying to steal my my possessions, my food, and so on and so forth. Uh, anger, you know, as a, as a response to actually, you know, um, laying claim to what is yours. You know, you could imagine survival and so on benefits. Uh, with that as well and look to be quite honest i mean that, that on that kind of point i mean that's not inconsistent again with with what freud would actually say um mm. you know because you know the whole kind of thing both you know freud's theory and hobson's theories here um are actually consistent with if you like a kind of evolutionary type of framework where these these responses have been shaped because in our you know distal uh in our distant past they they're, they're you know, and they continue to have certain type of survival uh, advantages for us.
0: So, is Hobson an optimist? Oh, is Hobson an op- optimist? Because
1: oh, I he, oh, could, can I ask you where, where, why, why you why you say this? Well, ask, why I, you ask
0: because this? if we're going to talk about the whole Corona thing, I mean, I want to, I don't want to, I don't want to really, you know, touch on it. But uh, there's a couple of things that because I'm kind of an optimist about this. I think sure. that in the long run, you know, good things will come from it. Um, on page nine. Uh he writes Chaos and randomness are our allies, not our enemies. Without chaos and without randomness, we are without freedom or at least the comforting illusion thereof. He talks about um uh it's unpredictability unpredictability that goes hand in hand with chaos is the friend of creativity and novelty. It is also bail money for release from the otherwise inescapable jail of the repetition compulsion. Now I feel I I I sometimes get into routines and repetition compulsion. That I think that's really worded well, and I um I tend to, to go into that category. So I I see that as being an optimist. How uh, right. these things is he being is he himself an optimist or is this based on sort of just his interpretation of how the brain handles uh, dreams and evolutionary aspects uh, that sort look- of thing?
1: I mean, you're now asking me, I suppose, uh, it's a very interesting question, which, you know, uh, something about uh, Hobson personally. Look, I mean, uh, I've got a very deep respect for for Alan Hobson, I must say. Um, And, you know, uh, our brief contacts with one another have been very, I suppose, civil and uh, academic. Uh, is he an optimist? Look, I would probably guess, you know, look, he's, let me say he's a very interesting character and I don't mean interesting here in that kind of, you know, subtle kind of criticism, if you if you know what I mean. Um, you know, he's, he's a very, very colourful character in many ways. Um, and I, you know, I, I would probably say in this, in, in, on the point that you're saying, that maybe he is being optimistic in, in a sense Um yeah, look, you know, maybe maybe there is, you know, uh, a certain kind of, yeah, actually, I probably wouldn't call it optimism per se. Um, it's more perhaps creative in a sense um, or, yeah, kind of almost humanistic in a sense, maybe. Um but look, you know, kind of thing you'd have to really speak to to, to him to get a fair sense you know i, I can't, it's not really my you know fair for me to speak for him, um, but as I said, I have a deep respect for him, so you know please don't take what I'm saying as a as well, in any way a kind of uh, personal kind of um judgment
0: well you you cite uh yourself here you say furthermore, there is a distinction between chaos and unpredictability yep what do you what do you mean by that? Uh, I would would say chaos is an extreme form of unpredictability, right?
1: (laughs) Uh, Well, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, look, it depends actually. I mean they're they're two different uh, – without getting too technical for a minute. In a sense they are – what's the word I'm looking for? Um, Metaphysically different classes of things, okay? So for instance you could have a chaotic universe um, and there's no predictability in it because there's nobody doing the predicting. I mean – in my sense, you know, may, predictability only makes sense if there's things predicting. Uh, so if there's no nothing, nobody doing the predicting, there's no, you could have chaos without predictability. Um, my point would be is that if you look at, say, a dynamic systems framework, which I kind of briefly allude to there, I mean, you can have what, you know, you can have chaotic kind of uh, factors in there, but within systems you can still have, um, you can still predict certain kinds of things. I mean, but predicting is a human activity, which may or may not be, uh, you know, useful or or, or not. Or um, yeah, I mean, I just suppose on that point of, of of you know chaos and predictability. I mean, this is where I, I actually think that there's a bit of a weakness in Hobson's account, or he's trying to he's trying to get the best of both worlds because. If you look at his initial theory, and he says this also in his later, um, uh, accounts, he's saying that, you know, kind of thing that dreams are all random and so on. Uh, and, you know, that this is, this is, you know, has certain type of value and it means we can't predict dreams, which, you know, may or may not be the case. Um, but then at other times he kind of is talking about dreams as being an orderly process. So, Uh, You know, if if it's literally chaotic, I mean, then you can't also, you know, you can't also point to dreams being having a certain kind of orderly kind of um, uh, functionality in the way that he also writes. So I think this is an inconsistency, a a theoretical inconsistency. And I, I kind of, you know, I can see how this easily happens because if you look at Hobson's original theory from the late 1970s, he's kind of, he's retained kernels of that throughout the last 40 or so decades as he's been developing his theory further but at the same time his general theory has been going through all these kinds of uh, somersaults and um, and and changes as it's incorporated more and more um, you know evidence and and so on so it's kind of i get a sense from his from his from his theorizing that it's it's not internally consistent because he's trying to embrace too many different features and uh, and and uh and 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 you you know he's trying to have have it both ways which i just i don't think is a sign of a good theory
0: if i could just uh throw a couple scenarios at you and then maybe you could tell me which theory this falls under underneath um so for example uh you're having a really really good dream like a great an amazing dream you wake up and it's just it's just gone you can't remember it but you you've you felt like it was a great dream and then it just quickly just fades away. What, like where does, where does that sort of fit into? Yeah. The okay. Here?
1: That's a, that's a really, really good point. And I think this is probably, uh, a, a, a good point that Hobson makes. And it's probably a kind of, there's a probably a fair criticism of, um, Freud's theory in some, in some respects, at least. So, okay, so this is one of the things that we actually know about um, dreams is that our kind of memory of them and our kind of, you know, self-reflectiveness within dreams is, is compromised. And in Hobson's account, you can kind of account th- due to the kind of brain state differences between dreaming and waking for why we don't remember them. Now, Freud's not entirely consistent on this point, but one of the things he does say about why we don't remember dreams um, is that it's it's mostly to do with this kind of repressive component. We're actually, you know, we're try we're actively trying not to uh, remember them. I personally actually think that there's probably you know greater merit um, to what Hobson is is proposing here rather than the the Freudian position. I mean I suppose just on that point, I mean I like Freud's theory or I like aspects of Freud's theory be be more accurate to say, which means you know it you can like aspects without having to kind of buy the whole package um and just on that that point i think there probably there are brain state changes that are you know probably more relevant for understanding why we it's more difficult to remember dreams however that's not to say there couldn't be potentially repressive processes i mean we tend to always want to say it's either this or that and 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 I think more often than not, when we look at these kind of polarised debates, that there's there's a kind of a meeting point somewhere in between. So, the the trick is, I suppose, to try and take of take what is of value from either Hobson's theory or Freud's theory or, or whoever's theory. Uh, and then try and, and, and try and, you know, find a, 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 a more comprehensive theory that embraces those, those um, valuable components. So, yeah, so anyways, that's a, it's a long way around for, for answering your question, but I think, you know, there, you can probably explain that more, um, uh, more, more, more straightforwardly with a kind of, you know, brain state change during dreaming account rather than, uh, you know, Freud's repression there.
0: What, what about when you're having a really scary dream and then you have yeah. the mindfulness to know, oh, this is actually a dream and you wake yourself yeah. up?
1: <laughs> actually, I, I that, mentioned before I had this, this original paper was was much longer. And, and in fact, that that the part that I cut off actually began with that what's described as it's only a dream phenomena. So you're in the dream and you actually recognize it's a dream. It's a scary dream. You might say to yourself, it's only a dream. It's only a dream. Uh, as a way of kind of almost escaping it uh and so on so how do we explain that well look you know what i i, I think this is something that um i i would need to think about further but you know something there's there's a certain kind of riddle here that i i'm quite keen to to explore further and um i mean just coincidentally though I, I started just uh, earlier this week looking at the the remnants of the that cutoff paper to see you know what position i wanted to to develop with it and i think look i mean it's it's something interesting that you can be in a dream you know and most of the time we we're kind of gullible in a sense we just accept what we see i mean you know somebody you could be talking to somebody they they just morph into somebody else and if that occurred during our wakefulness we'd pick it up straight away Um, but that can occur during a dream and you know we have and we just accept it and and that kind of extra gullibility if you like is, is is seems to be characteristic of a lot of this going on in dreams but it's it's not all you know it doesn't it's not always the case you can kind of train yourself through lucid dreaming and so on to become aware of these kinds of uh changes as indicators that you're dreaming and to become aware of it what i find interesting i mean getting back to your question about the is you know the it's only a dream kind of recognition is that you're, you're you're deep in the dream you're accepting it but then somehow it seems you know on some level Uh, you you kind of knew almost all along that you were dreaming. But I don't want to pursue that too much because I'm not going to pretend to have a really good explanation at this point, but it is something I'm going to uh, sink my uh, theoretical teeth into at at some stage in the the not-too-distant future, hopefully.
0: Now, when I asked you to do the interview, you said you were glad I chose this paper because you had an interesting story about it. Do you remember remember what that was? Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, really, I suppose. I mean, in some ways, we have covered this interesting the the story. And when I say it's interesting, um, I, I I personally find it interesting just because, as I said, dreams have always been very, very you know, personally interesting uh, to me from when I was a childhood and so on. I, I kind of also like just the history of the story just because you know you have Freud developing his theory and it's all it sounds all well and good but you know where's the evidence and then initially the brain evidence actually suggests if anything Freud is wrong and that's becomes the consensus kind of point of view and then from around you know as I said before from around the two year 2000 we start to see this kind of well if anything actually the evidence might suggest or seems to suggest that there might be merit to to Freud's position and so at the same time if you look at hobson's theory kind of thing it seems to be going through these various types of permutations so freud's theory hasn't really kind of changed at all from the from the initial proposal whereas hobson's theory has been kind of changing and evolving and and you know maybe a word evolving is good because it is taking on board and and uh, all these new kind of factors uh and so on but um as I point out in the paper, I mean it's evolving towards anything. I would argue a kind of Freudian position. Maybe not the entire Freudian position, but you know, as I said, nobody needs to accept the entire Freudian position. But nevertheless, it seems that um, you know the kind of I mean, uh, it, it, I can see a meeting point between the the two theorists. I, and you know, it's not just my own perception; other people have, have noted this as well. And I just think it's it's also interesting because there's a there's a the future here you know, if anything, is is hopefully going to elucidate the whole kind of, the whole situation um, even further. And, and you know, as I mentioned, you know, dreams are such a slippery beast to actually get, you know, anybody can develop a theory, but how do we really find uh, convincing evidence to actually say that one theory is, you know, you know, has more merit than another and so on. And so, I think it's really bright and, and very interesting future uh, in, with respect to um, you know, developments in technology and all the rest of it and the understanding of the brain and, and dreaming. So, yeah, interesting in, 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 on many different layers, I would say.
0: Well, you start with a quote. You say, psychoanalyst is founded upon the analysis of dreams, and that's from Freud. Yeah. Sure, um, sure. I, I don't know if you watch the show The Sopranos. I, I don't know if you're familiar with that show. Um, I am
1: familiar with it, but yeah, it, 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 unfortunately, I'm not um, yeah well versed in it.
0: Well, dreams come up a lot in the show, and then even the the psychologist, um, not the, the 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 psychiatrist, she often would wake up and then have a notebook next to her bed, and then she would write yeah. down her dream, and then she would bring that to her psychiatrist. So, yeah, right. <laughs> um, is that something you do? Do you do you have a, a notebook by your bed, and you is that something that you did? Is that uh, why you became I, interested in dreams?
1: I have actually done that in the past Uh, and especially when I was at uni or in the early days of of when I was studying my my undergraduate studies, I did that all the time. What I ended up finding was that I was waking up three or four times during the night and recording volumes and volumes of of dreams and um, I can't really spare, you know, I, I really need my sleep these days. Uh, and I can't really spare, um, you know, spare that. But I still every day I, I make sure in the morning I write down my dreams, really, uh, as best I can. Yeah. Wow. What do you? So what do you do with that? Uh, well, unfortunately, I'm, uh, you know, w- without making too many excuses, or you could interpret it in this in different ways. You know, it depends on how time poor I am or not. And I, you know, I tend to feel like I'm, I'm you know, I have a lot to do during the day, um, so I try and devote a little bit of time to it. Um, it will depend on the nature of the dream as well uh, whether how much time I devote to it I don't tend to spend a lot of time interpreting it uh, in the any kind of formal sense like Freud would would have us actually do and I've and in some ways I've never really done that but I've just tried to if anything I mean this is just a personal quirk uh, I'm not necessarily re- recommending it but just sitting very close to it um, as it were and uh, you know and sometimes you know different kinds of things, come into association with it i'm i certainly wouldn't claim to be able to interpret my dreams but sometimes they are more meaningful than at other times um i would say or enriching in different ways it's yeah it's a little bit kind of very what we might call um experience near rather than you know abstract and theoretical so i see
0: wow that's that's interesting okay well the the article is called on dreams and motivation comparison of freud's and hobson's views in the the frontier's in psychology, um, I guess the, the last question, um, because as you know, I'm a, I'm a master's in research student, just yeah. not even starting a PhD. Do you have any advice for up and coming, uh, researchers or writers? Uh, like you said, may, maybe managing your time or how do you approach, uh, do you have a writing schedule? What's, what's yeah. your, do, do you have a certain output you like to, to do per year? How do you manage projects? Uh, any, any yeah. advice for, 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 for young researchers or writers? Sure.
1: Oh, look, I mean, that's a really good question. And I, I, I feel like I've got some things to offer and I've, I've really learned this through trial and error, but through finding what works for me and what doesn't work. And I suppose on that point, in in some ways, uh, everybody's got to discover for themselves uh, what works best. And, you know, I've supervised a lot of students now over the years and see that, you know, what works for me doesn't necessarily work for, for, for other people. But what I would recommend is discovering the times of day that you do certain work best and when you know it's times of day where you don't do you don't work so well so if I can just use a very kind of you know crude example if you are more of a morning person or an evening person well then I would take that into account so for me I'm a morning person so the the prime time for me to be doing my academic writing my quality thinking is between really between 9 and 11 and after that it's downhill by and large so what i don't want to do is schedule things during that 9 to 11 time uh, if i can avoid it and i want to use that quality time for my best writing or you know my best productive activity uh other times of the day, like Friday afternoon, you know, through between 3 and 5 o'clock, you know, I, it, if I try and write then, it would generally be, you know, poor quality. It's, you know, I'm tired, it's the end of the week. Um, but I can still be productive in other ways. So that's where I might work on things like, you know, a reference list or, you know, kind of things that I could do semi-comatose. Uh, so it took me a while to kind of figure this out. But, you know, I, I now schedule my meetings mostly at times of the day, with people when you know it's not going to be my most productive writing time uh and and so i try and and just use that time you know the my quality time very very carefully and if you're an evening person then you know it might be the opposite pattern for what i do i think the other thing to to do is plan so i i never you know if i i I break my time up into roughly two hour slots because i tend to fatigue after two hours not you know it could be longer but you know generally for two hours and I would always approach it with a plan. I'd never kind of, you know, get, get, say get to my office at nine or something like that or, or eight and say, okay, what am I going to do? I've always planned ahead, have a clear idea of what I'm going to do for that two hours and what I hope to see at the end of it. So I would always be setting, having a plan of what I'm going to do and setting goals. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, I, I, you know, and that way you're just using your time as efficiently as possible, using the quality time for quality work, And you're you're not sitting down and then thinking, okay, what am I going to do? You you plan ahead, and so you know if I'm driving to work or catching a train to work, I would you know use that for reading, but I'd also if I could, but I'd also use it for plan, making sure I've got a clear plan. And and in fact, you know, I usually have a plan. Uh, my week planned out at, at, you know, ahead of me at any one time, I know okay, I've got this time free. I'm going to do this then. Of course I have to be flexible. Things come up, et cetera, et cetera. But I think learning to work with yourself rather than against yourself is a really important, uh, an important, um, you know, tip I would, I would say.
0: All right. Well, that's, that's great. Well, th- thank you so much. Again, the article is on dreams and motivation comparison of Freud's and Hobson's views. Uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Simon Vogue for coming on the show.
1: Uh, my pleasure. Thank you very much. And, uh, you know, I hope listeners find it interesting and feel free to contact me about it if you have any questions.
0: Yeah, I'll put your uh, email address in the, the show notes if, if anyone like to contact you. That's all right. Fantastic. Thank you again for listening to today's episode. If you'd like to contact the show, please send us an email, lostincitations at com. Please like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash lostincitations. It also helps greatly if you share the show on your social media platform of choice. And if you're feeling extra generous, please leave us a five-star rating and favorable review on iTunes. This will help us tremendously. One final thing, and maybe most important, if you enjoy listening to the show, please tell a friend or colleague. People often talk about their favorite podcasts, so let people know that you're listening. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you next week.